Now we're turning to Luke chapter 15 and reading again one of the master stories that Jesus told. And we have to cover a lot tonight, but it's a beautiful evening, so I made up my mind to make sure that you write here before 10 o'clock. So, so we'll see how we go, reading the story and as much lovely sunshine out there and good air to enjoy. So thank you for coming. I know it's the easiest thing in the world to be drawn in another direction on such a night like this, but how good it is to be to be together in the Lord's name with the Lord's people rejoicing in the name of the Lord. So it's Luke 15 and reading from verse 11. Father, bless your word to us. May it live, may it become real within our hearts. And we ask our Father that you would just enable us through your strength to not only hear your word and receive it, but act upon it. In the Saviour's name. Amen. And Jesus said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that fall to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the youngest son gathered all together, and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have filled, fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat. And no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, how many hired servants of my fathers have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. And am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was in a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring hither the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again, he was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his other son was in the field, and he came and drew nigh to the house, and he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said unto him, My brother has come. And thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry, and would not go in. Therefore came his father out, and entreated him. And he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgress I at any time my commandment, and yet thou never gavest me a kid, that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which had devoured his living of harlots, I was killed for him, the fatted calf. 
the father said son thou art ever with me and all that I have is thine it was meet that we should make merry and be glad for this thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found Amen to that masterful wonderful story that Jesus told now let us really last we began to have a look at this parable that Jesus uh, shared with people those uh, many many years ago and it probably is one of those well known stories parables that one would ever know or ever hear in fact he said didn't we that Charles Dickens said that it was the greatest story in the English language of course he wasn't far wrong and I know that each one of us tonight will, will know a tremendous amount about this particular parable of the prodigal son and the key line there is in verse 13 where he takes his journey to him it's a dangerous journey that could have ended quite simply and easily in complete disaster but thankfully the journey turns out well for him. But he, he took his journey. And last time we were together, we, we had a look at his downward journey there in the opening verses that we have before us about the young man, he is wanting and is wondering and is wasting and is wasting and is wallowing there as he begins to take the husks that the pigs are eating and wants to enjoy those things which for the Jewish person was one of the most demeaning, ugly, awful things that one could do. But he went on that downward journey. Now what we're going to do tonight, in the time that we have together, and we won't be too long, we're going to have a look at the, the homeward journey, and then the onward journey. And believe it or not, we're going to cover ten particular points. My, you say, well, you'll never do it. It will mean we're here to attend, you definitely were right. But we will cover those points. Because as there were five steps that the young man took in the downward journey, there are five steps in the homeward journey, and there are another five steps in the onward journey. And he took his journey. What a story. Oftentimes some preachers use what is referred to as alliteration. That is, the main points will begin with the same letter or the same sound. Some folk love that. Other folk hate it with great intensity. I had a dear friend many years ago who was my dentist, who actually hated alliteration. And of course he and I used to have quite a bit of discussion on it. Uh, because I know that I would use it mainly for my benefit that I might know where I am and where I'm going. But he, he detested it, he really did. And he got me worried when he, he put me under the gas and started moving it against my teeth. But he was a gracious Christian man. And I often think about it and one day we'll meet him in God's heaven. But I came across some while ago this particular section. Uh, it was written by someone, whoever it was, and I'll give you a taste of alliteration which will definitely, definitely cheese you and perhaps infuriate you. But let me give you a taste of it. What the whole thing in gladly have it. It's set to a particular melody in F, 
whatever that might mean, because I'm not needed to at all. But this is what it says. Now, this is what was written by this fellow. Feeling fruitless and frisky, the celebrated fellow forced his fine father to fork out the farthings. He flew far to foreign fields and fritted his fortune, feasting fabulously with faithless friends. Fleeced by his fellows in folly and facing famine, he found himself a food flinger in a filthy farmyard. Fairly famishing, he failed to fill his frame with forage food from further fragments. Filling my father's clumsy faith of fancier, the frazzled teacher forlornly fumbled, frankly facing facts. Frustrated by failure and filled with foreboding, he fled forthwith to Sunday. Now that's only half the poem. You'd like to have the rest? By all means, you can gladly have. It's interesting to say the least. I think perhaps it uh, digresses one from the real story. Not just a little, but uh, I certainly enjoyed, with my weird sense of humour, I certainly enjoyed reading the full poem. The downward journey. But what about the, the homeward journey there? And the five steps that the young man made. Remember, he was moving in the wrong direction. He was going on a dangerous path. And if by the natural course of events he continued that path, he would find himself in a total mess. And so he begins from verse 17, as we have it, to verse 19. And beyond that, he begins to take five steps back on the homeward journey. Follow through with me quickly as we share these things together. Step number one, verse 17, his reason. Now the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is reasonable. And anyone who responds to the gospel purely by emotion, and emotion of course is part of it, but if they respond purely by emotion or circumstance or whatever, then they really are in difficulties. But there in the far country, this young fellow began to reason things out. He was at the right stage, he was in an awful mess. And so the Bible tells us here that, that he came to himself. I remember hearing one young fellow enthusiastically, I think it was at a, a Bible club week, he was talking about the prodigal son and he said to the children that were there and he demonstrated by uh, the clothes he was wearing, he said the prodigal son took off his overcoat. Then he took off his, his, his undercoat there. And then he took off his clover. And then he took up his shirt. And then he said to the young people, he came to himself. Whether <laughs> he did come to himself, he certainly came to his friend there. But here's a situation where this, this young man begins to reason with himself. He begins to think about where he is. A poverty-stricken situation that he finds himself in. He begins to think about home and all that that might mean. And so then, as far as coming home is concerned, there needs to be a rationale. There needs to be a reason. You need to think things through. And it's important that we do that. And then in verse 18, we read of his response. And his response is this. He acknowledges quite readily 
in verse 18 that he's sinned. That he's gone the wrong direction. He's gone the wrong way. And he's not worthy to be, to be called the son of his father. And so having reasoned out within his mind and heart the things are far better at home and that he's in a total mess here he says I need to respond. I need to respond because I'm in the wrong and I'm not worthy to receive anything from my good father. Though as you know as the story tells us here Jesus speaks of the fact that he had unto him part of the inheritance. So then step number one is his reason, thinking things through. But step number two is his response. I need to do something about it. Now it's one thing to, to reason, isn't it? It's a one thing to see the answer. But it's another thing to do something about it. And it's crucial that each one of us as individuals acknowledge that, that by nature we are sinners. And by nature we ourselves are unworthy of anything, anything that God would give to us. You see, one of the big problems in human nature is this, is that although we may acknowledge that everyone has sinned and that there's no one perfect, they will not by and large acknowledge that they have sinned. And it's until the English comes to the point where he recognizes that the life that he's lived has not been a good life and that he's been in rebellion against God so until one recognizes that one has sinned and one has fallen short of God's glory and, and that one is unworthy to receive anything from God. Unless we have that kind of response, we certainly have a big problem. That leads to the third step in verses 18 to 19 there, his repentance. Now repentance is something, I'm not sure whether you, you hear much about it here in Grange, I'm sure you do. Repentance is that kind of message that seems to be, and generalizes now, lost today. We are given that God is love, which of course he is. Praise God for that. Thinking this morning, he brought us into the back of the house, this family all this us is love. He's a God of love. But he's also God of judgment. Thankfully, he's a God of mercy. And so therefore, if we, in acknowledging our sin, and if we come to the Lord, then we, we realize that we've got to repent, we've got to turn around. Now it's interesting what we read in Scripture. It's absolutely full, isn't it? You notice in verse 12, when he goes out, the expression is used, give me. Give me. As we said last time, we had the disease of the Gideons. After we read in verse 12. Then in verse 19 we read this. I'm no more worthy to call my son. Make me. Give me. But make me. And, and then in verse 20 it says this. And he arose and came to his father. In other words, the, the words are not specifically there as the other expressions are. But he's saying, take me. Lord, give me. I want. But what I want to receive is not meeting the need of my heart, taking me in the wrong direction altogether. So, Lord, oh my, make me. Make something of me. 
get a grip of my life. And then, Lord, take me. Because he goes to the Father and he turns from his wayward direction and he turns homeward again. He really repents. And without repentance, you know, folks, there is no salvation. Unless we are sorry and know that we're unworthy, unless we come and say, Lord, for years I said, Give me, I want this and that and the other. But now, Lord, I say, Make me, take me back. Till we come to that point, there is no salvation for us. So then, step number one is reason, step number two is response, step number three is repentance. Step number four in verse 20 is return. One of the lovely things about the story, and there are so many, is that his father is looking out for him. I remember someone saying when I was an early Christian, but it would seem to him that from the very day he left home, his father was looking for him. That's the father heart of God. We discover that there is compassion in the father's heart. We discover the way he sees the son coming. He doesn't wait for him to get home. He runs to meet him where he is. What a lovely picture is that. And when he gets to where he is, he throws his arms around him kisses him on the neck and says, Son, it's great to have you home. It's great that you returned back to where you belong and to where I can do something in your life that will guarantee a new future. And all folks, for any individual that returns to God because of the sinful life, whether it be a sin as far as so many folk understand it is going way back in the world, or Satan being brought up in the church and yet not having the Saviour as a personal Lord. What a great moment it is when we return. A demon in Belfast in the Gospel Hall uh, said to me when I was speaking on this quite a number of years ago, he said, Val, he said, can I tell you something? I said, certainly. Love to hear. He said, one of my sons became a real prodigal. And he just went completely off the rails. And he said, well, I never saw him for years, for years. Then out of the blue, I get this letter that he's coming back home, away to Aldergrove, to be reconciled with us. And he says, I'm so thrilled. I don't know whether he's coming back to the Lord, but he's coming home. And he told me very, very movingly and graphically of how he goes off to Aldergrove, it was different in those days, and he finds himself near to where the passengers are coming off. There's a kind of rope that's to uh, guard the movement between passenger and, of course, uh, individuals that are working them. And he said, there I was behind the rope, and I saw my son. I said, well, giving it a thought. I duped, you know that word, under the roof, ran towards him, and said, my son, it's great to have you. Maybe some of us can identify with that, or maybe will identify with that in future days. But here is the father. When the son comes home, 
gives him this incredible love. Oh, folks, what a picture that is, isn't it? The compassion and love and the enthusiasm and the embracing of the Father towards his prodigal son. And can we just say this, that maybe I'm speaking to some folk tonight and you have prodigal children that brought up maybe in the Grange, said prayers within the table, enjoyed the Sunday school, and whether there were Bible weeks in those days or something, summer, I'm sure they were. They went along, but tonight, far away from God. I remember in Port Stewart, quite a number of folk shared this with me, and so we began to have a prayer meeting, specifically once a week, I think it was, or maybe once a month, for the prodigals. Just a handful of us. And as we prayed for the prodigals, it was just amazing how many of them came home. One of them went with me to Peru a number of years ago on mission work. Oh, how we need to keep praying. How we need to have the encouragement of others praying for us that all the prodigals might come home. Now notice the last step that he makes in verses 23 and 24, rejoicing. Rejoicing, they have a sacrifice. Without sacrifice, there is no real homecoming. And there is security there. This is what it says, bring him in the fatted calf. Remember a dear young fellow was preaching on the cattle calf. And I've always been, been concerned that one of these days I'll mention the cattle calf. But it's the fatted calf which is mentioned three times here. So there was sacrifice. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost in his family. There's security as well. Oh my, how we can spend some time in thinking of those two things. So the homeward journey was very special in that he used his reason, he responded, he repented, he returned, and he and the others found themselves rejoicing. But what about the onward journey? Let's think about that for a short while, can we? A prodigal son and the onward journey. The scene, as I mentioned last time, is an interesting scene. In the country, there's the young son. In the field, there's the older brother. And at the home, there is the father. So what about this onward journey? There were five things, believe it or not, that are mentioned here that are worth well taking note of. Notice them with me, won't you? In verse 20, the welcome of renewal. We've already mentioned that. Vance Havner, that wonderful American preacher in the last century, said this, that the grace of God transcends all our feeble efforts to describe it. It cannot be poured into any of our mental receptacles without running over. The grace of God is incredible welcome. Chuck Swindle, that lovely writer, uh, in, in his book, The Grace Awakening, says, but as far as the Father was concerned, there were the eyes of mercy, there was the heart of compassion, there was the feet that ran, there were the arms that wrapped themselves around his neck, and there were the lips that kissed him. My, what a picture is that. Wonderful picture of the welcome of renewal. I often wonder how the young lad felt, you know. Saturating themselves in sin, living away from the family for so, so many years, 
making this individual decision with repentance to come back, I wonder how he felt with himself. Did he feel well I had said? Did he feel well I know the lash of my father's tongue for being so stupid? Did he feel that he would once more become part of the family? Oh no. The welcome of renewal was there for him. The picture of God, who whatever we've done, whatever we've been, however we failed, however we've gone off the mark, the picture of God with his eyes and his heart and his feet and his arms and his lips bring us reconciliation. My word blessing is tonight, isn't it? Those of us who know and love the Lord to, to experience that wonderful blessing, that wonderful welcome of renewal. God does something within our hearts and within our lives. Secondly, in verse 20, there's not only the welcome of renewal, but there is a kiss of reconciliation. I suppose one could pose the question, what's in a kiss? There was a well-known pop song many years ago that uh, focused on that particular theme. If I was a singer, I John last week, and I'd sing it to you on another occasion. But I was singer, I wouldn't know what's in a kiss. It's interesting to, to tabulate, to trace through scripture, the various kisses that are mentioned there. Peter talks about the holy kiss, 1 Peter 5 verse 14. You also remember Judas, of course, in the garden of Gethsemane, who betrayed the Son of Man with a kiss. I love how the psalmist puts in 85 verse 10, that love and faithfulness have met together, righteousness and peace have kissed each other. A kiss. A kiss is a token of acceptance. It is a pledge of reconciliation. It is a visible expression that we are loved. My step number two falls on his neck, says the Lord Jesus. Kisses him. Nothing sensual, nothing sexual about this. But something that deep-seated and deep-rooted there. That wonderful, wonderful welcome. That reconciliation is there. Son, you've been far away. But now you're welcome. I don't know whether you've read much of uh, a gentleman called Tony Campolo. He's a rare being in communication. He tells the story of how he's on a particular flight in the States and uh, there's a little girl there who's under the supervision of the aircraft staff. And Tony is there just a little behind her. And during the journey, this little girl begins to, quote unquote his words, stuff herself with drinks, pop, crisps, and food. You know how it is on some flights. You can put on a couple of stones before you get to the end of the journey. Well, this little girl is really enjoying it. She's having, in her mind, the whale of a time. But when the, the, the aircraft comes into land, as often happens, 
there are quite a number of bumps with the wind currents, etc. And so the little girl, having filled herself full, is sick all over. You can picture the scene. The play lands, the stewardesses are best to clean her up. And in those days again, uh, folk that met children could come aboard and, and see them. And so her father comes on board to pick up his little girl. Oh, how come forward tells it. He stands at the top of the aisle there. He sees his little girl who is in a total mess and distress state at this particular time. And Campolo says that the father is wearing a white suit. The little girl is absolutely covered, as one can imagine. So what does the father do? Without hesitation, the father runs to his daughter, holds his arms out, her arms reach him, they embrace, they kiss, and all the mess that's on her goes on him. What a picture, isn't it? That all our sin, when our Saviour died upon that cross, all our sin was put on him. My sin, all the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to his cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord of my soul. If thou image of sins were written upon that wall, I could not stand. But your Saviour and my Saviour has taken all of our sin upon himself. So there's the welcome of renewal and there's the kiss of reconciliation. Then in verse 22, there's a robe of righteousness. He gives him uh, something new to wear. He needs to take the old rags off. He's provided with, with a robe that he didn't provide for himself. And all he can do is to respond to God. Isaiah 61 10 tells us that we are arrayed in the robes of righteousness. The old rags of sin that are ours. God gives us a new robe, a new life. Absolutely sound. And so tonight as we sit in the church or as I stand here, the Bible talks about justification and sanctification. All that that means, which underscores for us the robe of righteousness, which is our, we will stand before God on that day when we give an account for the life that we've lived and we shall only be able to stand with the robe of righteousness having trusted with the Lord Jesus as our Saviour. So there's the welcome of renewal, there's the kiss of reconciliation, there's the robe of righteousness, and then you notice number four, there's the ring of relationship, a ring and some shoes. Oh my, would you develop this a lot in one of plenty of time? Do you remember in the story of Ben-Hur? Someone said that they loved Ben and hated her, but it's a fascinating story, is the story of Ben-Hur. And, and Arius, young Arius, is given a ring by his Roman benefactor there because he is adopted into the family. Of course, he's still Jewish, 
He still has that remarkable conversion, that story of fiction, but lovely story to read and indeed to see. But he's given that ring of a new relationship altogether. Folks, I've asked you the question, what are you worth? What would you say? You folk down there in the queue and me here in the pulpit, what's our value? I was reading this, that the average man, for example, has enough fat in his body to make seven bars of soap. Some of us may be more than seven bars of soap. But enough fat to make seven bars of soap. Enough iron in our bodies to have a medium-sized nail. Enough whitewash to cover a cottage away up here in range. Enough magnesium to produce something which uh, uh, is magnesium that's a big help to us as we exist and live. Enough phosphorus in our body to make tips for, believe it or not, 2,200 matches. And enough sugar to make us sweet all the time. What are we worth? What is the value of all those things? Believe it or not, a couple of pounds. So materially, you and me, the bodies that we live in, are worth a couple of quid. But to God we are worth more than that. We are so valuable to our Father. If he cares for the spouses before, how much more of you of value to the Lord than the little spouses that hop around? And so there is this ring of relationship, this, this ring of these shoes that what condition were his feet in after all that time away? Did he have any shoes at all? Well worn, I'm sure. But now with the ring and the new shoes, there's a new relationship with his father. Wasn't Billy Bray, the old Cornish team, tin miner, who had an incredible conversion, I know every conversion is incredible, but his was most amazing when you read the story. He said that no one would shut, stop him shouting hallelujah. He said if they put him in an old barrel, he would shout hallelujah through the bunghole. That's enthusiasm for you, isn't it? And so here we have this ring of relationship, whereby we have this living, wonderful relationship with our incredible God. Oh, folks, it's good to know that we're coming home. It's good to know that we are home. And it's good to know that we are, in human terms, Sons and daughters of the king. You and I belong to royalty. You may not look at it, and certainly I don't look at it, but we do. The real relationship guarantees that. And then lastly, we read this fifth step. There is the table of rejoicing. Sacrifice. A provision of food supply. This my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
And, and so these five things on the onward journey there are very special, aren't they? That all of us as Christians can have and do have a welcome of renewal, a kiss of reconciliation, a robe of righteousness, a ring of relationship, and a table of rejoicing. And they began, I love this comment, to make merry. Who said that Christianity was dull? If as a 17-year-old I came to the point where in observing Christians, I found them to be dull, I would never become a Christian. Of course I would, but uh, you know what I mean by that. So glad tonight, folks, that uh, God saves us. And because of that, it gives us a joy in all circumstances, even in the day of trouble that we're talking about this morning. What a finish! He's dead and is alive. He's lost and is found. He's whole. Great story. But is this the end? It's the end of our message tonight, and hopefully we've done well to get through them all. But is this the end? Oh no, because in verse 25 it says this, Now his eldest son was in the field. And so not only was there one prodigal who wasted his life and rivals of him, but there was another prodigal, a hard-working farmer who was doing his best, who was living his life, as much as you can understand the right way. But he too was wonderful. But what about him? Well, that's, as they say, another story. For there is much in the latter part of the prodigal son story as there is in the other. He took his journey, his journey downward, his journey homeward, his journey onward. So folks, journey well. If you don't know the Lord yet, start that journey tonight. Through Jesus on the cross, and Jesus being alive. And if you do know him, thank you for that renewal and that reconciliation and the riches and rejoicing that there are in our wonderful Savior. If I'd be of help in any ways, I always say, I'd love to talk to you afterwards. On anything that I've said or anything that I haven't said, but may the story just burn in our hearts and minds for a long, long time. Let's pray together and then we'll sing our final piece. Father, we thank you for this incredible story that our blessed Lord Jesus told those thousands of years ago. We thank you, Lord, that it stood the test of time, that it's ministered to many, many lives. So many, Father, we couldn't calculate them. We pray that tonight, as we've shared in the story, on this lovely evening, you would take us home rejoicing with the robe and the ring and all that we said as part of our personal, daily, eternal experience. Grant it, dear Father, in the Saviour's name. Amen.